This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on March 27, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. I'm going to let my guest introduce himself in a moment because he does a better job than I could. Midway through the following discussion, we'll take a break for a short segment sponsored by the Kavli Prize with Caltech planetary astronomer Michael Brown, who has done groundbreaking work, no solar system breaking work, on the Kuiper Belt and its largest members. His segment is not unrelated to what we'll be talking about now. It's not about coronavirus, but you'll find some parallels to how some people are reacting to coronavirus. Buckle up. So I'm Michael Marshall, uh, and I'm the project director of the Good Thinking Society, uh, which is a charity based in the UK. Uh, the whole purpose of our charity is to promote science, to challenge pseudoscience. So we'll do work to, uh, to forward science education. And then another part of the, the work that we do, which is the bulk of my work, is to find ideas that aren't backed by evidence and find people who are promoting those ideas, find people who are buying into those ideas, and to explore them and figure out uh, if anything can be done to prevent people being uh, confused by them, harmed by them, misled by them, and those kinds of things. So I spend a lot of my time looking at things like alternative cancer cures and the people who promote those and alternative medicine. Uh, I've spent a lot of my time going to see people who say they can talk the dead or who can do faith healing. Uh, and then another part of my uh, my time is spent talking to people who believe in uh, unusual ideas and who are kind of proponents of them. And that's how I came across the, the flat earth world uh, is through my uh, slightly odd uh, hobby uh, at the time before I was working full time as a, as a skeptic. It was a hobby of mine to um, be in rooms filled with people who disagree with me to just understand what brings people to ideas that I would look at and say, well, this can't be true. These kind of fringe and extreme and uh, unusual beliefs. Um, what brings people to believe them and what, what, what kind of paths leave people there? What evidence supports, uh, supports their position in their minds? Uh, and uh, how do they engage with the world with that worldview and, and to try and um, have conversations I've got a podcast where I talk to people who have kind of fringe beliefs. And instead of having a conversation that a lot of people would have if they are a skeptic about something and they're talking to a believer where you sort of shout at them and tell them they're wrong and point out all the evidence and tell them that, you know, and it gets into quite a, a volatile discussion sometimes. Instead of that, I try and have a civil uh, and polite uh, chat to try and explore the gap between us. So I say, I don't believe in, in this idea of yours, but I'm really interested to figure out why I don't believe it and why you do. So let's have a conversation. So I have these kind of civil discussions. And that's kind of how I came across uh, the, the flat earth theory and the idea that there are people walking around today who think the world is flat. It's, it's really interesting and serendipitous that we're sitting here because I knew that there were some flat earthers out there and I just thought it was kind of strange and funny. Mm. And about a week ago, I discovered a friend of mine who is very well educated. She's got a doctorate in biochemistry. And uh, she has a sister who's also very intelligent and very well educated. And my friend told me that her sister is a flat earther mm -hmm. and that her sister is very indignant about the uh, idea that um, we don't take them seriously. And she said, Something to the effect, and this is hearsay that we're getting yeah. from me right now, that, well, you know, if you looked at the evidence, then you'd know yeah, that what yeah. you've been told isn't true. So all of a sudden I became fascinated with the flat earth people. And then uh, just on Twitter, and I had I had <laughs> not been a follower of, of yours hmm. until uh, I saw this tweet that somebody I follow must have retweeted uh, that you had just given a talk mm. in Edinburgh where I had been. 
And uh, so I reached out to you, and turns out you live in Liverpool, and here I am in Liverpool today. <laughs> so uh, that's why we're here talking. So tell me, what do the flat Earth people uh, think, and why do they think it? So to really unpack, you've got to sort of unpack that question a little bit, because it's very easy for us to see uh, the flat Earth movement as one singular cohesive movement. And that's how I first thought about it when I, f I first came across it in 2013, um, when I came across the Flat Earth Society in the UK. And so I had a, a conversation with the vice president of the, of the Flat Earth Society, and I assumed, as you probably have in your mind, that people who believe the world is flat think that the world is a disk, and in the center you've got the Arctic Circle, then you've got all the continents of the world sort of splayed out to fill the circle, and then Antarctica is like the edge of the disk. But what I found out that when I first spoke to the Flat Earth Society is that not everyone in the Flat Earth world has that version of the world in their heads. Some do believe it's a disk, um, but others believe that, yes, there's Arctic Circle in the middle and there's the land masses around it and then Antarctica is the ice around the edge. But instead of it being a discrete disk, uh, some people believe, in fact, Antarctica just goes on forever in all directions. And so they believe that uh, the Earth is actually an infinite plane in all directions that bisects reality which is a really lovely idea. What, what does that mean, bisects reality? <laughs> so, it, uh, so it will go on in, in north, south, east, west, just go on forever. Uh, and there is the above and the below, but there's no way of getting from uh, the top to the bottom because it's just infinity of all ice in all directions forever. So there's no way of getting below the earth. And so this was a, when I first came across the Flat Earth Movement in 2013, this was quite a um, vociferous debate that was going on. And the, the, the website Within at the time... Within the Flat Earthers. Yeah, it was, it was quite a, a, a schism really. And so they'd, the, the Flat Earth Society at the time was largely a forum where they would uh, bring forth their proofs uh, of one version of this theory or, or another. And I also think there was another schism going on in the movement at the time, um, which is uh, between one side, which are people who genuinely really believed the world was flat, and the other side, which absolutely did not believe it, but just enjoyed the intellectual pursuit of arguing a position they knew to be false. And so they would find quite esoteric and off-the-wall proofs that most people wouldn't think of. And so when I first came across it in 2013, there were people wading into these arguments who uh, believed the world was round, but had never thought about it before, but just assumed in a sort of quite an arrogant way that they must know better than anybody who's ever thought about it and come to a different conclusion. And so they were stomping into these arguments saying, well, what about photos of the Earth from space? And what about this? And what about ships going over the horizon? Thinking, well, this is the gotcha, but not realizing that those were the first things they'd thought about, that they thought the, the world, sure. that proved the world was round. Uh, and therefore, it's probably likely that the people who think the world is flat have had the same idea, and yet they're still flat earthers. So at least in their mind, they must have a good answer to that, that the people who believe the world was round to have in these arguments didn't have because they'd never scrutinized the idea they were rejecting enough. And so what was happening was, I think, to a degree, the part of the schism that were just having fun and knew very well the world wasn't flat, but just enjoyed the, the pursuit of doing that. They were winning those arguments with people who were coming in and arrogantly assuming that they could uh, answer everything. And in winning those arguments, they were really converting even more people who really believed it. And so you had this kind of uh, effect where it would sort of spiral out of control a little bit. But I think it wasn't it wasn't viral in the way that it, in 2013, in the way that it was in 2016 and 2017. Yeah. And I think part of that is because that esoteric, off-the-wall version of proofs could be quite complicated to get your head around. So, for example, if you have the disk version of the world and the infinite plane version, both models suffer uh, from uh, an inability to explain gravity. Mm -hmm. You don't have a spherical mass, you don't have a central mass, you don't have a central point pulling it all to, to, to one point. Um, so it's very difficult to explain gravity in either one of those models. But these people who were doing kind of esoteric uh, arguments were saying, well, what is gravity? Gravity is an accelerant force towards the ground. I think 9.8 meters per second squared right, right. accelerates downwards. 
they said that is identical to a world in which the, the, the ground accelerates upwards to meet you. And so when you let go of something, it isn't that it's accelerating downwards, it, it, that it's uh, the ground's actually accelerating up to meet it. So it's a form of relativity. And that's, well, this is exactly where they come to. So people would then say, well, if, if the ground is, if the, the earth is, you know, an infinite plane in all directions that bisects reality and is accelerating upward at 9.8 meters per second squared and always has been since the dawn of time, you'd hit a problem, which would be the speed of light. You can't go faster than the speed of light. So people then have a gotcha for this. And so the people who were putting forth esoteric off the wall trollish arguments would say, well, look at Einstein's theory of relativity. As you approach light speed, time itself slows down and the maths in their head works back out again. So yes, we're getting quicker, but time's getting slower and we can account for gravity in that way. And that's quite a complicated idea to get sure, your head around. Sure. And so I think the fact that these people were winning arguments was getting was converting some people to the movement, but the way in which they were winning them were keeping people away from the movement because they were quite complex ideas. To, you couldn't stick them on a meme as you can these days. Here's a picture of the Earth. You couldn't explain all that stuff about Einstein's theory relatively proving gravity in an infinite plane version of the world. Um, so I think there was a limiting factor going on. And that's why that when I first came across the Flat Earth movement, it was probably still pretty small, pretty unknown. I've been giving talks about pseudoscience for the last kind of five, six plus years. And I'd mentioned that I came across the Flat Earth movement and people would always say to me, there's nobody who actually believes that. Nobody actually, they don't really exist. They're people having fun. So it stayed quite small. And then in 2015 and 2016, a couple of things happened that really ignited the movement. And it was the publishing of two videos on YouTube or two video series on YouTube. Um, one, I believe, was uh, Eric DeBay's 200 Proofs the Earth is Not a Spinning Globe. Uh, and the other was Mark Sargent's uh, f uh, 14 videos in his Flat Earth Clues series. So now we're going to actually be converting more people <laughs> to flat earthers. Well, it's, they are genuinely worth looking up because what I found really fascinating about the Eric DeBay 200 proofs, and there are 200 of them in there, is that uh, it was published in 2016. So it was three years after we had the uh, infinite plane and the gravitational kind of explanation via Einstein's theory relative. So it was three years of what you'd expect to be evolution and sophistication. And, and, but in fact, proof number one, the horizon looks flat. Proof number two, even if you go up a mountain, the horizon looks flat. Proof number three, water uh, can't stick to a curved surface. It always goes level. You can't get it to, so there's no way it could stick to a ball. So they're all very, very simplistic arguments. And there's 200 of them. Um, some of them stick to sort of uh, pseudo-physical properties. Others go to uh, conspiracy theory. So I think proof 189 is saying that, well, Isaac Newton and uh, Neil Armstrong and Galileo, they were all Freemasons, therefore the world is flat. And so you have this kind of uh, this this video, and it was also pu published as a, a free ebook, which collected lots of different so-called proofs of the world being flat. That picked from lots of different genre of proof. So if you came to the flatter, if you if you were generally uh, interested in conspiracy theory, you'd come to it and you'd find enough conspiracy theory reasons to believe the world is flat in there. If you came to it because you uh, place way too much emphasis on the, uh, the the your own powers of observation. You know, you can't show me the curve. I'm looking at a horizon. I can't see the curve. You can't tell me my eyes are wrong. If that's your, your style of thinking, there were arguments in there for you that would tell you that that would support the idea the world is flat. So I think it kind of covered all its bases a little bit. If you came from uh, a fundamentalist Christian perspective uh, in a biblical literalism, the world is 6,000 years old and created in seven days as per the Bible, uh, which a large part of flat earth movement is actually crea creationism in, a, in another guise. Mm -hmm. um, there were creationist arguments in there that would support uh, the, the, the idea the world is flat. So it really did pull together different genre of flat earth arguments into one document. And I think that's why 
why it became quite successful, because it had a little bit in for anybody who might be uh, in any way inclined to doubt the, the veracity of the round earth theory. That inclination is usually a pre-existing condition? I think so. I think so. So a lot of the way that people were coming across this information was uh, through YouTube recommendations. Uh, this is, I think it was a study by the American Academy of Sciences at their last kind of uh, convention, which actually uh, went, to the, the, the uh, scientists went along to the uh, US Flat Earth Convention and spoke to people there and asked, how did you get into the Flat Earth Movement? And of the 40 people they asked, 39 of them said, I saw it recommended to me on YouTube. And the 40th said, my son saw it recommended to, to him on YouTube and passed it along to me. So it's what's appearing in that right-hand bar of up next on YouTube. So I think when there were people who were looking for moon landing denial videos, uh, YouTube, once these flat earth videos started getting out there and started uh, having a sensationalist kind of style, so it would have a sensationalist title, uh, there'd be pe people would come and watch it because they believed it. Some people watch it because they thought it was silly. Some people watched it because they wanted to scrutinize it on a point-by-point -point basis and watch it five times in a row to really get to the grips of every single argument so they could write a, an article about how wrong it is. YouTube at the time said, that it didn't say there's three distinct audiences with three distinct agendas. It says there's one audience of three times the size. So this is a pretty good video because loads of people are watching this all the way to the end. And uh, so once YouTube saw that, it started recommending it to people. So you'd be watching a video about moon landing denial and YouTube would say, I think someone who's a bit like into moon landing denial might also be into the flat earth theory. And it would float it, it there as a suggestion. And if people clicked it, that solidified that link a little bit. And the more people clicked it, the more that became solidified. And I think that's how a lot of people found their way in. And then it's, it, because it became such a solid link, I think it even went beyond people who are already looking for conspiracy theory uh, ideas. Um, you had people who'd be looking for videos uh, of, the, of the Earth from space, and they might see this video in there, and then they might watch it, and then that kind of strengthens those relationships. So YouTube had this kind of arguably accidental, I don't think they were deliberately doing it, but it had this algorithm that was recommending sensationalist and extreme ideas uh, regularly to people who were searching for, for things that weren't necessarily about that. And I think that did serve as a, as a recruitment tool. And those two videos and the responses to those, those two videos and video series from Mark Sargent, Eric DeBay, that really ignited the movement because I think they came along at just the right time or the wrong time <laughs> in our perspective uh, that it captured uh, that YouTube algorithm in full flow. Uh, so what do, just I'm interested specifically in the videos you say of uh, the Earth from, hmm. you know, space or the moon. Uh, what's the response? Those are all faked? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, if I, I've, I've had lots of conversations with flat earthers. And when you bring up those visual pieces of evidence, they'll say, well, come on, you can't trust visual evidence. And they say photographs, for example, if you show me a photograph from of the, of the Earth from space, I'll show you a composite job. I'll show you a Photoshop job. I'll show you a hoax. And they'll say that NASA even admits that those photo photographs are composites. So, well, they are composites, but even if they are composites, they're composites of what? They're composites of photos taken from space. It's just they're taken with a camera that isn't far enough away to get the entire Earth in, in one go. But you're going to see snapshots of the earth and then you come you compose those together because you've got uh, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object right. you're going to have to sort of stitch those together a little bit but just because it's a composite it's got to be it, it's composed of something you saying it's a composite doesn't throw out the fact that this is actually a genuine photo as, as well um and so they will talk a lot about how uh we can't trust nasa that's a big big part of it nasa's part of the conspiracy we'll return to michael marshall after this short break from the cavalry prize Remember Pluto? It used to be our ninth planet. Well, that was before astronomer Mike Brown discovered a collection of little worlds in our outer solar system, some larger than Pluto. Those findings, says Brown, really helped us uh, redefine 
what the word planet meant, what our outer solar system was like, and how the solar system put itself together. They also earned him the 2012 Kavli Prize in Astrophysics. But since triggering the ouster of Pluto, his Twitter handle is PlutoKiller, Brown has been busy searching the skies for additional objects of interest, including the real Planet Nine. As part of our partnership with the Kavli Prize, Scientific American Custom Media reached out to Brown for his thoughts on this mysterious missing planet, why we still don't fully understand our solar system, and the possibility of life on other worlds. Brown didn't set out to get rid of Pluto. I started out looking for small objects in the outer solar system in this region that we call the Kuiper Belt, partially because I wanted to understand what, what was there, but partially because I, I thought there were probably new planets still to find. And when it seemed like the bodies beyond Neptune were not all that sizable... It took me a while to, to get over it and to keep on being excited about studying just these little worlds. And then the most amazing thing happened, which was by studying these little worlds, we suddenly realized that the very most distant ones were slightly not going in the directions they were supposed to. They're all lined up. They're, they're all tilted in the same direction. They're all pointing in the same direction. And they're pointing toward the existence of another planet, a big one. The gravity of this giant planet is the thing that forces all these other orbits into this particular pattern. Since then, Brown and his colleagues have been trying to locate what they call Planet Nine. We now know about how big it is, that it's about six times the mass of the Earth. We know about how far away it is. It's probably 10 to 15 times further away than Neptune. We know how it's tilted. We know how it's elongated. We basically know the path that it travels through the sky. The one thing we don't know, though, is where in that path it is. But he thinks he may be able to locate it in images that we already have. I think we now know how to go through the universe of data that exists out there and process it in a way that we can pick out Planet Nine moving across the sky without necessarily having to go to any telescope at all. It's a computationally uh, incredibly intensive task, but it's one that I think we are now finally up to. And looking for it? is almost instinctual. To me, the search for Planet Nine is the continuation of really of what humans have done forever. Humans explore. The first humans, I'm sure, looked across the plains and wanted to know what was on the other side and went and walked over there. The solar system is, in, in a sense, the biggest neighborhood that we have. And so the exploration that's happening now is, is making our biggest neighborhood a little bit bigger if we can find it. It could also teach us more about what makes our neighborhood special. If you had asked 20 years ago if we understood the formation of the solar system, I think most astronomers would say, I think that, yeah, we understand it pretty well. But then in the last 25 years, we have repeatedly found other planetary systems around other stars that are nothing like the solar system. We find things with giant planets parked in orbits closer than Mercury's orbit. We find stars with eight planets, small ones inside Mercury's orbit. We find all of these crazy things that we would have never predicted could even be possible. We seem so different from the typical planetary system that we see out there in the galaxy. And the question is why? Could that odd configuration have helped to make life possible? Not only here on Earth, but maybe even on one of the moons of Saturn or Jupiter. If we could find life anywhere else in our solar system, that would be a 
surefire indicator that life is incredibly easy to start, that if you have the right conditions, you have life. And that's the big question. If we find microbial life in Europa, if we find life spewing out the vents in Enceladus, if we find hints of some sort of weird methane-based life on Titan, then that really just tells us life is pretty much everywhere. For his part, Brown will keep on looking beyond the beyond. I continue to be fascinated by the edge of our solar system, and we're now pretty sure that there is a Planet Nine out there. But once you admit the possibility of a Planet Nine, and you think about how Planet Nine got there, there's no reason to not start asking the question about Planet 10, Planet 11, Planet 12. I'm excited that the outer solar system exploration can continue even after we find this next one. I, th I thought it was kind of done back when we de declared that there were no planets left to be found out there, and I kind of feel the excitement coming back. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Kavli Prize. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. Mike Brown is a professor of planetary astronomy at the California Institute of Technology. Don't miss the announcement for the next Kavli Prize laureates on May 27, 2020. Now back to Michael Marshall. Lots of the flat earthers that I've met, I went along to the um, UK's Flat Earth Convention and spent three days in a hotel in Birmingham with 160 flat earthers. One of the most genuinely enjoyable weekends of my entire life. Really, really fun. Um, and I went there not to tell them they're wrong and yeah. not to be superior, but to really understand what brings people to that movement. Um, but what I heard lots of time was that, well, NASA is evil. NASA is a tool of the government, a tool of the Illuminati, a tool of the New World Order. Um, they rely on their budgets, so they need to keep that money rolling in, which is why they keep churning out material that suggests the world is round. Um, some people even believe that NASA is a tool of Satan. Uh, and they have all sorts of convoluted uh, explanations as to why that is. Uh, one of my favorite uh, explanations was one of the speakers at the um, Flat Earth Convention, uh, an Argentinian conspiracy theorist, who said, uh, we know for a fact that the UN is a front for the one world order. Because if you look at the Spanish name for the UN, it is the O-N-U. And if you read that backwards, it's U-N-O, which is Spanish for one. And therefore, we know for a fact the UN is uh, a front for the one world order because the reverse name of it in Spanish is Spanish for one. And my friend I was at the convention with leant over and said, does he realize that UN is already French for one? Because <laughs> he could have shortcutted a lot of that logic. <laughs> yeah, but that numerology, when you, when you connect the dots like that, is so... Uh... It's so intriguing. And it so is attractive, yeah. and so they'll see that, and they'll say, "Well, look at the uh, look at the image, the logo of the UN, and you have the flat Earth. You have the Arctic Circle in the middle. You have all the continents around it." And so they'll say, "Why would the UN have the flat Earth as their logo if it isn't true that the world is flat?" And I had this conversation with the flat Earth, and I said, "Well, what else would you want the UN's logo to be?" And they said, "Well, you could, if, it's, if the Earth is really round, you'd show it from the side." Okay, but then which countries are you not putting on? Do you want to show America and not Europe? Do you want to show you know, the, the Northern Hemisphere and not show Australia? Right. Um, and so he said, well, okay, fine. So you show it from the top. But if that's the case, why isn't that Antarctica on the UN's logo? It's missing. 
And his idea of that is because Antarctica is either the disk around the edge or it's where the dome that surrounds the world is. And I said, well, Antarctica isn't a nation. This is the United Nations. It isn't a nation. You know, there's good reasons if you, if you sort of sense check these ideas. But uh, if you're presented them in, in a way that says the UN's a front for the Illuminati and the One World Order, and here's proof, look at their logo, therefore flat. And you, you're not then encouraged to sense check your ideas, to, uh, to, to look for ways to doubt yourself, to look for ways to disprove your theories rather than looking for evidence that proves them, you end up in a place where all you're doing is confirming your ideas further and further and further. And this is what we see. We see it in our lives all the time and we're guilty of it all the time. But I think we're guilty. This is, this is a movement that's specifically guilty of it. Does heliocentrism hold and the other planets are flat disks or something as well? Or are they yeah. something else? It depends on who you talk to. So it's not just that there's the disk version and the infinite plane version. There's actually lots of, there's a myriad of different versions of the, the, the flat earth and the universe beyond it. So some will believe that we're flat, but the universe around it is pretty much as is. That's quite a, a niche belief in the flat earth world. Um, some believe that, uh, many believe the sun isn't very far away. So it's very hard to, to uh, justify the solar system as conventional science would have it with a flat earth belief, especially a flat earth belief that may be rooted in creationism and therefore has this kind of earth is the center of everything kind of way. And, you know, the sun was created on, on one of the days after the earth was already created. And so some would therefore believe that instead of the sun being millions and millions of miles away, it's actually quite nearby and much smaller. And that's how they account for time differences across, uh, across the world, how they account for seasons. It's just that you're further away from the sun at that point. Um, others believe that the world is a disc, but it's under a dome, um, which again goes back to the biblical idea of the firmament, the firmament being the roof on top of the world. Um, one of the, one of the, the uh, piece of evidence I've heard brought uh, for that uh, firmament idea, for that dome theory uh, idea, was from uh, Mark Sargent, who said, uh, if you look at the gravestone of Werner von Braun, so Werner von Braun, obviously the, uh, the, the Nazi scientist smuggled out of uh, Germany uh, after the Second World War by Operation Paperclip, installed towards the head of the US space program, um, his V2 rocket technology is partly responsible for, for America getting into getting to the moon first. Um, but if you look on his gravestone, it references Psalms 19.1. And if you look up Psalms 19.1, it reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So says Mark Sargent, why would the father of space exploration have on his gravestone a reference to the biblical roof on top of the world, if not a post-deathbed confessional? Here's where he's saying there is a firmament, and the only way to get me out of Germany was to go along with their hawks. Now, I would argue the reference is much more about the first bit, the heavens declaring the glory of God for a man who saw his technology as being the key to the heavens. It was the, the way that man, mankind unlocked the sky. Um, but if you're a flat earther, you see that gravestone and this is proof then that there is a roof on top of the world. And if you believe there's a roof on top of the world, then it starts to ask questions about what is space beyond it. And so I spoke to, to Mark Sargent about this and he said, well, the sun and moon are still there, but they're much closer uh, and they're separate bodies with their own separate light sources. And the way we know that, he said, is because sunlight is warm and moonlight is cold. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, sunlight obviously warms you. He said, yeah, that wasn't a bit, I'm disputing. Uh, he said, moonlight. He said, if you go out in the night with a thermometer and you put that in shadow and take a temperature reading, and then you move it away from the shadow into the open clearing and then take a temperature reading, the temperature drops. And that's because the moonlight is cooling the thermometer down. Well, what's actually happening is your first temperature reading is in shadow and therefore in a shaded area. <laughs> and then to get into moonlight, you have to move it out of a shaded area and expose it to whatever, whatever other winds and things you have. And that's, a, uh, that's the reason for it. Um, and so one of my favorite things about Mark Sargent's uh, theory actually is that 
like many flat earthers, he was a, a conspiracy theorist who believed in all sorts of conspiracies beforehand. So uh, JFK was assassinated by the government or by an inside, it was an inside job. The moon landing was never real. Uh, he believed there was a civilization used to live on Mars who carved a face on a rock on Mars, all, all the kind of classic stuff. And so when I spoke to Mark, I thought, one of the ways to try and understand um, what counts as a standard of evidence and how do you sense check, I thought I'd ask him, was there ever a conspiracy theory that you used to believe in that you now no longer believe to be true? And I thought maybe this will help me understand whether he can come back from an idea. And he said, well, it's funny because I, I used to, he said, I used to always wonder why are all these different conspiracies true? And then I realized the world was flat and it all made sense. Because I thought, why did the government kill JFK? It's because they knew that we couldn't get to the moon. So the moon landing had to be faked because you can't get past the firmament because the world is flattened under a dome. So it, he said it was like um, the, uh, the, the, the flat earth is kind of the Rosetta Stone of conspiracy theories to a degree. It makes all the rest of it make sense. But he said, there's one thing that no longer makes sense to me because I no longer believe that there's a face on Mars. And I want to meet the guy who came up with that because I, I really want to know who's behind him. And I said, yeah, that's because you no longer believe in Mars. That's because you believe that the planets and the stars are just projections on the dome. So you have a different view of the universe depending on what version of, uh, of the flat Earth you, uh, you believe in. Uh, what are some of the um, most popular um, co-conspiracy theories? You know, the, the flat earthers also mm. believe in, uh, are they anti-vax predominantly? Yeah, so this is where I think it gets quite important for me because uh, when I've spent time at, the, at the, the Flat Earth Convention, when I've talked to flat earthers and then talked to people who are, you know, scientists and skeptics about it, they all say, well, at least the flat earth is harmless. And I think the problem is uh, the flat earth beliefs don't exist in isolation. So one of the things that really surprised me, actually, at the, at the convention that I went to was how little material was about the flat earth. So the Argentinian uh, conspiracy theorist that was presenting that I mentioned before, he was talking not only was there a one world order and an Illuminati that was you know, run by Satan and, and various other tools of Satan, uh, but he was also pointing out how dinosaurs were faked and how it was a, dinosaurs were invented by an artist who looked at, uh, rhino, who looked at uh, giraffes and rhinos and crocodiles and sort of mixed the three together to create dinosaurs. But he also said, if you want to know who's really go what's really going on behind the world, read the book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and that'll tell you what's going on. And there you go. Now, now you're really at the, at the one of the good roots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what surprised me was, I was shocked to hear this, you know, hugely uh, influential anti-Semitic hoax, do hoax document, uh, the Protocols of Elders of Zion, a, a fake that was created to stir anti-Semitism. I, so I was shocked to hear that brought up on stage at this convention where I was expecting to hear about the flat earth. But I think I was the only one who was shocked. No one else seemed to bat an eyelid. And so we do see these different conspiracy theories clustering together. And uh, I spoke to a journalist actually at the at the, the, the convention that weekend and they were having a, a, a lovely old time interviewing people saying, oh, isn't this fun, isn't it silly? So well, it is fun, but if you really want to know what's going on, just see that couple over there with the baby, Ask them if the baby's vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Ask them if that baby was ill tomorrow, would they go and see a doctor or would they believe that big farmer is a tool of oppression and evil and money-making and all this kind of stuff? You know, one of the speakers at the convention, as well as being a flat earther and as well as being a 9-11 truther, um, also believes that you can cure all manner of diseases, including HIV and AIDS, uh, by drinking or injecting your own urine. And this is, these, are, these are the ideas that are sort of bedfellows. And so I think uh, Flat Earth is, in some ways, it's just the most visible of uh, an ecosystem of conspiracy theory. Uh, and I think to, to, if you really want to try and uh, help people challenge the, their own beliefs in the Flat Earth, you have to see it as such. You can't see it in isolation. You have to try and look at the, the wider pattern that it fits within. What's IDS? Sorry? You said HIV and AIDS. Oh, that's my accent. It was AIDS. <laughs> that's a Northeastern accent for you. <laughs> 
I, I was thinking it might be, uh, you know, sudden infant death syndrome oh, without sense. the yeah. sudden. <laughs> okay, this is so fascinating. Um, and you're obviously a tro- tremendous talker. So why don't you why don't you promote your podcast? <laughs> uh, so I've got a couple of things that I do, but uh, the one in which I talk to people who uh, who put forward ideas that I disagree with is called "Be Reasonable." With the idea being that I'm there to be reasonable, to put forward a reasonable face to it. And so um, I've talked to all manner of people, from people who believe the world is flat to people who believe the world is hollow. I wish that's a really interesting interview because that goes in places in, in, in the same way that you might not associate, uh, anti-Semitic hoaxes with the flat earth belief. The hollow earth belief goes into some of the curious positions too. And that's well worth a listen. Um, and I've interviewed people who believe they can talk to the dead and, and many other things like that. But I've also interviewed people who, uh, are promoting, uh, the drinking of bleach as a, a cure for cancer. Uh, and people who are putting forward white supremacist beliefs, uh, anti-feminist beliefs, and some pretty extreme positions. And the, 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 the idea of the show really is to kind of understand the way we as people structure our beliefs, because I think the, the structuring of belief is, is, very, uh, is very similar the details of the beliefs change. And I think that Flat Earth is a, is a great way of examining the, the, the nature of belief, um, untainted by the possibility that it might be true. And once you've, once you've really examined that and understand it, once you've understood the, the factors that influence people's beliefs, you can sort of lift that entire framework up and then lay it over some of these other beliefs that are much harder to point to a single fact that disproves it. So I think, yeah, understanding people who, who hold fringe or extreme positions is a useful thing if we want to try and uh, limit their influence and uh, bring people back to uh, a more reasonable position. And, of course, bleach is back in the news, as some people have been recommending it as an anti-coronavirus gargle. Do not, under any circumstances, do that. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.